Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Joe Spencer to talk about the book of Isaiah. Joseph M. Spencer, an assistant professor in the Ancient Scripture Department at BYU, earned a Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of New Mexico and has published extensively on Latter-day Saint Scripture and Theology in BYU Studies Quarterly, the Journal of Philosophy and Scripture, and the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, where he serves as editor. He is also the co-editor of the book series Introductions to Mormon Thought, which he is co-editing with Matt Bowman for the University of Illinois Press and the associate director, along with Adam Miller, of the Mormon Theology Seminar. It's his book, The Vision of All, 25 Lectures on Isaiah in Nephi's Record, that we'll delve into today with a special emphasis on the material pertaining to the writings of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. I actually read this book for a second time (laughs) in preparation for this interview, and I enjoyed it so much more because like the book of Isaiah itself, your book is so jam-packed, <laughs> full of information. You need to process it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We don't actually think of the word fun when we're talking <laughs> about studying Isaiah, but that's exactly what you've tried to do in this book. How did you go about making Isaiah accessible yeah. for just the mainstream member who wants to start studying more deeply? This is a project I was doing on the side of a much larger project on Isaiah in the Book of Mormon that I'm still working on. And mostly I was trying to get my thoughts out of my head. And uh, I struck on the idea of writing a sort of lecture series. I've never delivered it, right? I've never given it publicly as a lecture series. but, But it sounded like a fun sort of literary experiment to write it in as chatty and classroom voicey kind of way as I could. It was a lot of fun to write. I'm used to writing thick academic prose. It's amazing that you can write in both styles. So many people can't. It's taken a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is such a unique style, and I think that's part of the allure of the book, I'm going to use your words off and on through this interview. Let's start with the first sentence of the book where you say, we Latter-day Saints are trying to make sense of Isaiah. You go on to describe it as a weight we carry. What do you think the root of that burden is? The simplest answer to that is just that right in the Book of Mormon, we have Jesus Christ himself saying, get serious about this book. You've got to read it. You've got to make sense of it. You've got to study it. We feel, I think, collectively a kind of responsibility to take it seriously. And then we read a chapter or two, and we think, what do we do, right? So it becomes a kind of burden, an albatross around our neck or something, right, that we carry, we feel we ought to do something, we'll buy every book in sight that has something to do with it in the hopes that we'll feel better about it. So that at least. You start off lecture one, two reactions to Isaiah. Admit it. 
The very mention of Isaiah's name is enough to put you in a mood. I don't know which mood, but some kind of mood. Why can't we simply be indifferent to Isaiah? Yeah. What do you say to that? If you look around uh, what's been said about Isaiah or even just average interactions with Isaiah, my experience has been that you tend to find one of two reactions. And that's what I mean by two moods, right? There's one reaction to Isaiah that's sort of like, no idea what's going on here at all. I know I'm supposed to care about this. I can't even get started. Who knows? And their kind of guilt is associated with that. The other attitude that you tend to find is one where someone gets a little symptomatically excited about Isaiah in a way that makes you wonder what they've got up their sleeve, right? Where they think they've solved the puzzle and they've got all the answers and they can show you exactly what it all points to in the last days or something like that. Of course, they've got a mood as well, a mood of a kind of perverse excitement maybe or something. Isaiah, maybe because of this sense of burden or responsibility we feel toward it, it's going to affect us. We can't be indifferent to it, but we tend to go in these two almost polar opposite directions. You take a unique approach to studying the book of Isaiah. Instead of starting in the Old Testament, you start in the Book of Mormon, and you use the Book of Mormon's use of Isaiah to understand Old Testament Isaiah. Why do you do that? Yeah, uh, I suppose there are two answers to that. So one is a kind of historical accident. That is, I got interested in Isaiah through the Book of Mormon. I just happened to have gotten interested that way. And so the Isaiah I began studying was the Isaiah of the Book of Mormon. But I think there's a lot of richness there. And so it wasn't the bad way to start. But I've discovered along the way a kind of second reason to do this. And that is that one thing that's really remarkable about the Book of Mormon's treatment of Isaiah is it's not monolithic. That is, Nephi has one way of approaching Isaiah, but Abinadi has a very different way of approaching Isaiah. I think you can distinguish Lehi and Jacob from Nephi. When Jesus Christ himself comes in 3rd Nephi, he's got yet another approach to understanding Isaiah. The Book of Mormon discourages in a certain way what is maybe a very natural reaction on our part to read Isaiah as if there's one definite meaning and I've got to figure out that meaning. So I think this is a real benefit to reading Isaiah starting from the Book of Mormon is that it doesn't tell us, here's the meaning. Now you've got to sort that out. But instead says, Here's a range of possible ways of reading it and different circumstances under which it might be read in different ways. And then we don't get locked into too quickly a certain kind of definite approach. It's definitely a healthy approach. I hope, yeah. You start out your discussion of the interpretation of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon with Nephi having a vision. And there's an angel and you say, I don't know about you, but I'm struck first by the angel's question at the outset. Knowest thou the meaning of the book? The angel's explanation, it seems to me, is supposed to answer the question. So we ought to make sure we understand it. Yeah. We need to understand the meaning of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we go about that? And here, the book very specifically seems to be the whole of the Bible within which, of course, Mm -hmm. Isaiah has a place. What's, I think, very striking about the angel's explanation of this book that uh, Nephi sees in his vision is that whereas we tend to think of the Bible as a predominantly Christian book, everything in the Old Testament pointing to Christ and everything in the New Testament explaining his life and his doctrine, here, the angel's explanation of the Bible is very Old Testament. 
It proceeds out of the mouth of a Jew. It's a book that's filled with the covenants given to Israel. It's filled with the prophecies of the holy prophets. Uh, he literally says nothing about Christ. He says nothing about apostles in that explanation. It is all Old Testament. And that itself seems to be suggestive. When we come to reading Isaiah, or in some sense, the whole of the Bible, the beginning place, as Nephi wants us to see it in light of this vision, is going to be Old Testament, covenantal, prophetic themes, rather than this sort of dominant picture we have of going after Jesus Christ first. And there's an 1,800-year tradition of doing that. The angel also says, They have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and precious. Also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. Did you catch that? The abomination of the great and abominable church would seem to be that they reframed the Bible so that its message concerning the Abrahamic covenant effectively disappeared. What was the reframing? This is a difficult question, in part because I'm a philosopher, not a historian, right? So I'm not soaked in the documents of uh, early Christian history. But as I read what Nephi is giving us, the picture seems to be something like this. He seems to put it very early in Christian history, I think. There seems to be a kind of deliberate, and I would say top-down, re-envisioning of what the coming of the Messiah meant, stripping it in some sense of its Old Testament feel, of its Israelite covenantal prophetic content. And of course, that has massive effects in history. I say that they're just interpreting Nephi, but I think we can actually get more concrete about it. Like I say, I'm not an historian, but talking to historians and reading as widely as I can in history, I think it's actually possible to reconstruct the process that the Book of Mormon has got in mind. Uh, You can track in early Christian history the development of a non-Jewish reading, if you will, or a non-covenantal reading of the Old Testament. In the first century, in the writings of Paul, in the Gospel of Mark, it's very clear. Even by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, the dominant picture is one where the Gentile converts have replaced historical Israel, and the covenant was not about them, It's about us, European Christians. And that was the dominant picture in Christianity, I mean, right up until the Holocaust, is what has really begun to make Christians ask questions about that that tradition. In laying a framework for studying Isaiah, you start by discussing the purpose of the Book of Mormon as it relates to Israel. Will Mm -hmm. you share that with us? Yeah, and I think this is apparent straight from the the title page of the Book of Mormon. We often read that part in the second paragraph and say, okay, here we get the purposes of the Book of Mormon laid out point by point. And we tend to say, note its key purpose is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the everlasting God. That is unmistakably there. But before, even before the title page says anything about Christ, it says it's to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel the things done for their fathers and to let them know the covenant that they're not cast off. Right from the title page, the Book of Mormon states for the reader, here's the purpose. It's about making clear these covenants and showing a very specific remnant of Israel their part in that. Even the statement there about Jesus, right? It says, also to Jew and Gentile, to show them that Jesus is the Christ, the everlasting God. But then it goes on, manifesting himself unto all nations. And that seems to be the picture, the traditional Christian picture where Jesus came in one time, one place, is too narrow, 
and it misconstrues what God has done in history with the covenant people. It's bigger, bigger picture. And that runs, I think, from the title page then right through the book. The message that Christianity was not a replacement for Israel would have been quite foreign in 19th century America. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great deal of talk of Abrahamic covenant kinds of things in early American history. But the primary, the dominant interpretation there uh, is one where it's Calvinist interpretation. uh, And the interpretation is we Europeans who have come and settled in the New World, we are the covenant people. It's very uh, predominant in Puritan theology. I mean, it's a really radical gesture that the Book of Mormon is making in the context of the 19th century because it's claiming, no, it turns out the Native Americans, right, the people you have come and crushed and displaced, that's Israel. That's the covenant people. Gentiles are here to help build a city for them. And it's a radical gesture in the 19th century. Nephi obviously believed that the Book of Isaiah had something to do with the topic he was discussing. So who or what was Isaiah? I think Nephi is very careful here. He sees Isaiah as talking about a different people and a different time than Nephi's own people in the distant future. But Nephi does what he calls likening, right? He likens what he reads in Isaiah to what he has seen in vision about his own people. The best way that the Book of Mormon gives us to read the book of Isaiah is not as a book about the last days, but as a book that lays out a covenant pattern, you could say, that God uses in dealing with his people that Nephi says God's going to do again and again and again. To ask the question, who or what is the book of Isaiah, or who is Isaiah, what is the book of Isaiah, is to ask a question about a book that's primarily in itself focused on a pretty narrow slice of history, though it's such a rich patterns and structures in it, the way it outlines what was happening in Isaiah's own day uh, are patterns that are so rife with content that they they can be repeated. So we find life still in Isaiah, though Isaiah himself, I think he's looking at a pretty narrow little picture. Let's move to Old Testament, yeah. Isaiah. Who and what is that book of Isaiah? It's a complicated question for a Latter-day Saint because there's a, this classic question about authorship uh, in the book of Isaiah. Most scholars today don't really care about that question much anymore. (laughs) The consensus has long been in uh, sort of secular Isaiah scholarship, if you want to put it that way, that there are multiple authors behind Isaiah stretched out over several centuries. And most scholars today just assume that it's not a, a live debate. But that would be a problem for the historicity of the Book of Mormon, at least on a straightforward read, because the Book of Mormon uses parts of Isaiah that are supposed to have had their origins after the time Nephi's family would have left Jerusalem. So there's a kind of difficulty, right? If a a Latter-day Saint can't too quickly or too simply buy in wholesale to what's happening in Isaiah scholarship, uh, at the same time, there's a lot of really rich stuff going on in Isaiah scholarship that I think Latter-day Saints stand to learn a great deal from. How to answer the question is difficult, right? Who was Isaiah? We can say something about who Isaiah of Jerusalem was, 8th century, living at a very specific time, context. There are parts of the book that seem to have their origins or have a lot of trappings of a later time, mid-6th century Babylon or later. But that's a kind of open question, I think, for Latter-day Saint, how to make sense of that. But the themes of the book of Isaiah are clear, regardless of how one talks about authorship. It's worth saying, too, that one of the things that has developed, uh, I mean, over the course of the 20th century generally, was the idea that there was a kind of Isaiahic school 
right? So there's Isaiah of Jerusalem himself, and that those who then added to the book or developed it, whether editorially or adding whole content, formed a kind of tradition, a kind of school. And most of what's happening in Isaiah scholarship today, uh, sort of cutting edge, if you will, is trying to reconstruct the process of that development, if it's right, right? If that's the right hypothesis, reconstructing the development of the book of Isaiah over the course of several generations. But people invested in this original prophet's message and importance. Describe the literary structure of Isaiah. Yeah, in general terms, you can just divide it right into two halves. The first half or so, it's kind of hard to know exactly where to draw that line, but the first half or so tends to focus primarily on judgment, right? Israel during Isaiah's day is just not getting the picture of what God is trying to do with this nation. And the result is going to be exile and ruin and destruction and so on. It's interspersed with these promises of a time to come where that will be reversed. But the whole second half of the book is intensely focused on restoration. So where there has been judgment now, usually where people draw the line is between chapters 39 and 40. And chapter 40 opens with comfort. Comfort, my people, right? You've received double for all your sins. Now come back, come back, right? And it sort of very cleanly divides into two halves in this way. Another difference is that the first half emphasizes writing, Mm -hmm. while the second half emphasizes reading. Yeah. How would the emphasis on writing be a departure from past methods of prophesying? If you read in what often the scholars call the former prophets, which by which we mean the prophets being described in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Samuel, that kind of thing. Here we have prophets who, they don't have books that they wrote. Samuel, I mean, there's a book called 1 Samuel, but it's not his book. He doesn't write it. It's a story about him told by someone else. Same goes for Elijah, Elisha, and so on and so forth. But when you come to Isaiah, something's happening in the 8th century. Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Hosea, these prophets from the 8th century often get called the writing prophets because, yeah, something has changed. For Isaiah, there's a seems to be, I mean, in a lot of ways, Isaiah is the richest of these because he seems to account for it, explain it. He's a prophet who is speaking to a people who will not listen, and God himself seems to be behind that, making the people not listen. As a result, Isaiah, he decides that these prophecies that are welling up in him have got to be for a people that aren't around yet. So write them up, seal them up, wait for someone who will listen. What does the shift to reading in the second part of Isaiah imply? This is, uh, I think, a really interesting detail, and it's, uh, it's probably worth saying right out of the gate that something that's only emerged very recently in Isaiah scholarship to read the second half this way. So I'll actually drop two names here. Edgar Conrad and Hugh Williamson are the two scholars who have really pushed this reading. Through the second half, you've got these moments where they're usually in the King James Version translated cry, cry out, right? But the verb in Hebrew can be translated as read. And if what we have here in the second half is an opening of the book, that was sealed up in the first half. Now, as there's comfort and restoration and so on happening in the second half, part of that is now we have a people who is finally prepared to unseal the book that Isaiah has sealed up, to read it, and to receive the promised blessings of of restoration, peace. To start our discussion of the first half Mm -hmm. of Isaiah, whose theme is judgment, you use this quote. Let's tease the first one out with this quote. As history unfolds, the divine plan makes itself known. 
God, it turns out, is up to something with this messy history. Yeah. You've got my interest. <laughs> yeah. Isaiah's got a, a kind of key word running through the first half of the book. Sometimes uh, it's the word work. Sometimes it's the word that plan. But it's a very clear thing. God has got an organization, right? He's got a scheme he's trying to accomplish in history. And so it looks messy. My goodness, we've got these empires and these complicated political relations and Isaiah's in the thick of it and so on. But what God is doing is using this history to winnow, that sounds really dangerous, right? But to winnow Israel down to just a remnant that will be prepared, ready. That's not a foreign idea for Latter-day Saint, right? Because this is how the Book of Mormon ends. Tragically, with tens of thousands of people falling, but left behind the remnant that could finally be prepared. Isaiah seems to be working with a very similar idea. This is what God is doing in history. It's a mystery, but it's, but it's what he's up to. It wouldn't be a foreign concept to the Israelites either. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, the literature on this remnant idea shows that it's common in Egyptian thought, it's common in Babylonian thought, it's in Assyrian thought. So yeah, this would be a very familiar concept to Israelites then, and certainly say to Jews now looking back on their history, this is a common idea. The message of the second part of Isaiah is of deliverance. How do the authors tell that story? It's a really interesting story, and one that this is what gets Nephi so excited about Isaiah. It's not just a, a sort of simple deliverance, a simple restoration. You're going home, right? Instead, it's uh, you're going home, but you're going home not because of any goodness on your part. Right? It's a kind of gesture of grace. I'm going to take you home. But the way I'm going to take you home is through the Gentiles, these people that you have ignored and dismissed and so on, who have now ravaged your, uh, your lands and taken you away into exile. They are going to take you home, carry you on their shoulders, and hold you in their arms and, and restore you. It will be such a miraculous event, this restoration, that all the Gentile nations will wake up and see that this God is God. So this is the story of restoration here, not just now it's over, you get to go home, but we're going to do this in a way that gets the whole world involved. Early in our study of Isaiah, you give us some strategies for studying the book. Yeah. The first one is use alternate translations. Yeah, I think this is actually really crucial. One of the biggest hurdles for reading Isaiah is just a language problem. The King James Version is 400 years old, and a lot of language has changed. People stumble reading Shakespeare for a reason, right? <laughs> One of the best things I think people can do is just get a good modern translation. I prefer the New Revised Standard Version. I highly suggest reading it side by side with the King James, because then you can look back at the King James and go, oh, I see what was going on there, even if it looked devastatingly confusing at first. It's readable. It's like the cliff notes That's right. for your gospel doctrine class. Everybody else is reading the King James Version, and you got your new revised version. <laughs> You're like, I know what it means. Right. <laughs> and what's nice is almost all of these modern versions are available online for free. You don't have to go out and spend any money. You could literally just pull it up on your phone and look at a verse, right? You also mentioned that we shouldn't get lost in the details. This is crucial. I think that someone will read a weird verse, right? And you just a thousand silverlings. I don't know what's going on here, right? And then either get sort of obsessive or throw their hands up. But the best way to make sense of this is to watch for larger patterns. Can you track the basic story? I mean, think about how a child learns language, right? 
something like that. Okay, I know those four words that just got used. Can I use context clues to kind of reconstruct a general picture? That's enough to go on. Great. And I think that's the way to do it. You read through a chapter and you're going, these eight verses mean nothing to me, but do the other ones tell a story? And if so, don't get worried about the details for now. We don't need to understand every metaphor. Exactly. Nor do we need to stretch every metaphor. Boy, howdy, right? <laughs> if there's any danger I find at a kind of average everyday level in reading Isaiah, it's that people try too hard to find something in some obscure metaphor and it gets wacky. <laughs> you use a couple examples in the book that are really funny. <laughs> the last one. Stop looking for Jesus in Isaiah. Yeah. He's there, but not necessarily where we think he is. Yeah. I have to be so careful with this one. I've been criticized a bit for making that statement. People will be like, what? What do you think you're saying? And don't you realize that that's what Isaiah is talking about? So I should clarify what I mean there. What I don't mean is... Jesus isn't important, or Jesus has nothing to do with the Old Testament. No, 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 no. That's a way uh, misunderstanding what I'm saying. My concern is that we tend to read the book of Isaiah only looking for Jesus. And the result is we tend to read it going, okay, I don't know what's going on. Uh, that kind of looks like Jesus. Good. Now I don't know what's going on for what. That kind of looks like Jesus. We're really just kind of skimming, looking for things that maybe we can tie to Christ. And I think that's a mistake. It makes it hard to read most of the material, for one, because even if there are places where Isaiah is very clearly talking about Christ, we're talking about four or five passages in 66 chapters. We should be looking for the rest of the material first, and then we can get clear about things that, that may speak about the Messiah. Let's go there. Yeah. Let's talk about the Messiah in Isaiah. What is a Messiah? This is a crucial question. It's easy for us to see this through the lens of Christianity. It's what we've inherited. And in that picture, the Messiah means something like God in the flesh. No ancient Israelite would have thought of it this way. The word Messiah just means anointed one. And there were two primary kinds of people who are anointed in Old Testament times, if you will, kings and priests. To speak of the Messiah is to speak of the anointed one, the priest or the king. What's really key here is that there develops through this complicated history surrounding the house of David. People are familiar with King David, of course, right? This glorious king who has this kind of tragic ending and so on. Uh, he receives a promise that his dynasty, his family, will remain on the throne indefinitely. Of course, they end up being, a lot of them, terrible idolatrous, and eventually Jews are hauled off into exile. How on earth to make sense of this promise when the history doesn't seem to make much good on it? And so there slowly develops very clearly in Jewish history this anticipation of a king still to come, right? That David's promise is focused on something that's going to go right here eventually. And this is how they see it, right? We're waiting for a king who will finally set us straight who will have the right relationship to God, that's the Messiah. The Messiah or so, a Messiah? Yeah, I mean, any promised king would be a Messiah, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. By the By the second century, third century BC, it becomes a kind of picture of the Messiah. But yeah, most biblical scholars today would say before that point, we're not dealing with any strong concept of the Messiah. But eventually there emerges a really clear, right, by late second temple Judaism, second, third century. I guess we need to, differentiate from the Messiah in the New Testament. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you said the Messiah. I'm like, right. oh, no, but they're different people. They right. have different roles. That's right. 
and Old Testament, the Messiah would do what? Precisely, yeah, what I was talking about, right? So it would be a king, a king who would come, who would be righteous, who would judge in, in righteousness, and who would establish peace. Nothing more, nothing less. They would assume it would be human, right? It would just be a kind of God-sent king. Eventually, this is going to take a very different shape in history. Like after the death of Christ. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way that most New Testament scholars see this is that the earlier the material in, in early Christianity, the more human Jesus looks. He's the Messiah that was anticipated, no question, but he's the Messiah in this very traditional sense. But the later you get, later in the first century, the more there's this sense that Jesus was God come in the flesh. That's debated. It's worth saying, like, that's the picture that's dominant or consensus. But there are scholars who go, eh, there are traces of Christ being God in some of this early stuff. So that's, that's still an unfinished question. But You mentioned that you've gotten some pushback when you say stop looking for Jesus yeah. in Isaiah. I was speaking with my husband and I said, Isaiah doesn't talk about the Messiah coming, meaning the New Testament Messiah. Right. And he goes, but handle. <laughs> <laughs> so right. you have given us three chapters or verses that are traditionally interpreted from the book of Isaiah by members of the LDS church as being messianic. Yeah. Let's go over them. Sure. First is Isaiah 7, mm -hmm. which talks about the virgin's son. Joe, how much more clear could it be? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's very obscure. <laughs> For one, the word that's translated virgin just means young woman, right? Alma in Hebrew. The Greek, the very ancient Greek translation, they rendered it Parthenos in Greek, which means virgin. And so you can see how this sets early Christians up for reading that passage in a very specific way. But the word itself in Hebrew, it just means a young woman. And in context, it's really clear that what Isaiah is talking about is, okay, these nations are going to be destroyed. How long is it going to take? Okay, some woman here is pregnant. By the time she has a child and that child knows the difference between good and evil, these nations will have been destroyed. If the prophecy were, okay, 750 years from now, Christ will be born, and by then, these nations you're worried about are going to be gone. This isn't helping the king he's talking to, right? So in context, it's clear that Isaiah is not directly, at least, speaking about what we would understand to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I really like that early Christian authors, the early Christian fathers, as we call them, they often distinguished between what the prophet was talking about and what the Spirit of God in the prophet was talking about. I'd like to see that distinction revived, right? Where we could be really clear that Isaiah himself is not talking about that, but that we, under the Spirit, could see it as saying something more than what's historically there. But then we've got to be honest about what it's also historically doing. A child is born. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor. Here we've got a situation where the context is very clear. There's devastation, there's destruction, thanks to the Assyrian Empire. How is Judah, this nation, going to get out of this? And Isaiah announces, someone's come to the throne. There's this child that's taking the throne. And in context, it's relatively clear that what we're talking about is Hezekiah, who in fact, later in the book of Isaiah, as well as in the book of Kings, in fact, defends Jerusalem against Assyria successfully. This is the child that's born in context. This one, I mean, it's worth saying, where chapter 7, I think it's very, very clear from the context, we are not talking about this 
very distant coming New Testament Messiah, though we can read it that way in other ways. Chapter 9, it's a little murkier, right? It's pretty obvious that it's Hezekiah from context, but it's kind of weird to call the king the mighty God, right? So here it's sort of like, it's almost like there's a certain Christian messianism or something that's beginning to get a foothold or something like that. But strict historical reconstruction, I think it's really clear we're talking about events in the 8th century. The third one we're going to talk about is referred to affectionately as the branch. Yes. Isaiah 11. This one's really fraught for Latter-day Saints, not only because there's this long-standing Christian tradition of reading it in terms of Christ, but because we have DNC 113, which then does all kinds of other things with it, right? So for the moment, we'll just bracket the Doctrine and Covenants and, and say we can get to that some other time or something. Here is where I think we get something like genuinely messianic prophecy. And I think this is relatively relatively consensus in biblical scholarship that by the time you get to Isaiah 11, we're looking to a distant future. Hezekiah does not fit the bill. We're talking about a coming king who is going to render peace and establish this kind of, I mean, global peace. The whole earth will be covered with the knowledge of God and the animals will get along and all this kind of thing. So here it gets bigger. The picture's too big to fit Hezekiah. It's almost as if over the course of chapter 7, 9, and 11, we're moving broadly away from local circumstances to genuinely messianic. Now, that said, does Isaiah 11 have a kind of direct, specific reference to Jesus Christ? And I think Isaiah wasn't thinking that way, right? He was thinking deliverance for this nation. The spirit that we might bring to the text, we can look at it and go, well, here's how deliverance really comes. But it's probably what was in Isaiah's own head. Earlier, you gave us some strategies for a serious study of Isaiah. In conclusion, let's look at Isaiah's big picture. Yeah. What things should we keep in mind about the contents of the book of Isaiah? That is a great question, and it's kind of hard to sum up. There are themes to watch for uh, above all, right? Watch for the theme of the remnant. It's one of the most dominant themes. As you're reading the book, watch for what's being said about the remnant. What's happening with Israel? At what point are they wicked? At what point are they potentially righteous? What is God doing with them to get them to the right place? And what role is the remnant playing? I would say it's really important to keep clear in your head when we're dealing with judgment and when we're dealing with restoration. And so in reading the book to recognize this kind of constant shift that's happening, judgment, judgment, restoration, judgment, judgment, restoration, and then eventually full-blooded restoration. So one way of understanding what's at stake in all of that, the remnant, the restoration, how do we read these themes, is that the book of Isaiah is about primarily Israel's covenant, uh, Israel's relationship to God. That's what we're watching in it. The Messiah is going to be a part of that story. But that's the story, the bigger story within which the Messiah is playing a role. So to read it carefully, we've got to track what is happening with Israel's relationship to God. And it's a systematic story. It unfolds point by point. The nations have a certain role to play. Israel has a certain role to play. There are times where what we're dealing with is Israel astray. There are times where what we're dealing with is Israel repentant. And we've got to watch that unfold point by point. The other thing to say generally here, and this kind of goes back to where we began, right, is that the Book of Mormon teaches us to read the Book of Isaiah as having multiple meanings. It can't be narrowed down to, boom, here's the meaning. Here's what it's predicting. This was fulfilled by this, and that was fulfilled by that. But it's a book that over and over again 
can teach us God's dealings in history with the covenant people. I really like the phrasing that you get from the book of, it's in 2 Nephi 6, but it's Jacob talking. And he begins, he says, okay, so my people, this is the first time we hear Jacob's voice, but he says, I've talked to you lots in the past. And when I talked to you in the past, I've taught you many things from ancient history. I've taught you things from the past. But today, I want to teach you about what is and what is to come. Two things, right? We want to move to the present and we want to look at the future. And he says, so I'm going to read you Isaiah. I think it's an interesting move, right? He wants to say, we can look at what's going on right at this moment. They're literally living through this, right? On the other side of the world, Babylon is hauling Jews off into exile at that moment. Here's what is, but also here's what's to come. We can see in, uh, in Isaiah many meanings. We can find its historical, reconstructed meaning. What was Isaiah talking about then? We can also read it in the spirit and find over and over again the way that these patterns are unfolding and the way God deals with us individually and as a whole people. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you spending time today with us. Hopefully listeners, the next time they flip to Isaiah, they won't <laughs> immediately tense. <laughs> They'll say, hey, I'm cool with this. Yeah. I can understand this with the help of maybe your book and a study Bible. And yeah. I can get through this and I see what so. Isaiah had to say. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.